Welcome to a new weekly podcast series called USERF Spotlight, hosted by the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, an independent federal advisory body. During each episode, Director of Outreach and Policy, Dwight Bashir, features a special guest to dive deeper on various topics and breaking developments that impact the universal right to freedom of religion or belief around the globe. Welcome to USERV Spotlight. I'm Dwight Bashir. Today we're taking a look at this central Sahel region of West Africa, where several violent Islamist insurgencies have been gaining power and committing religious freedom violations in the areas they control. The Sahel is a little-known belt of semi-arid land in Africa just south of the Sahara Desert, but it's a region of increasing significance as it has seen the largest increase in violent extremist activity of any region in the world in recent years. Security challenges compounded by climate change uh, have yielded a devastating humanitarian crisis with an estimated more than 15 million people in need of humanitarian assistance, 5 million people uh, facing food insecurity, and nearly 2 million people displaced. In one pocket of this region, though, at the borders of Mali, Niger, and Burkina Faso, Growing violent Islamist insurgencies represent one facet uh, of this complex crisis. Groups there are now actively engaging in violence and targeting individuals based on their religion or belief. Today, we're speaking with USERF's policy analyst for West and Central Africa, Madeline Velturo. She's conducted research on the Sahel for more than five years. Madeline, to start with, can you give us a little background uh, on the violent uh, Islamist insurgency threat in the Central Sahel? And who are these groups and, and what are they after? Thanks, Dwight. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here with you. The Central Sahel is currently home to an extremely complex and fluid landscape of Islamist insurgent actors that stem from both locally grown and foreign movements. The crisis really escalated in 2012 when jihadist leaders from Algeria linked up with separatist movements and local Islamist groups in northern Mali. Um, And the Islamist groups gained a foothold in northern Mali and later in central Mali. And from there, they've spread their influence east into northern Burkina Faso and parts of Niger. There are a few groups to be aware of, but they generally fall into two camps. First, we have the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, or ISGS. ISGS emerged in 2015 when it broke with another local Malayan jihadist group over the leader's decision to declare allegiance to the Islamic State. Um, And ISGS is is now the dominant Islamist group operating in Niger's western Tilaberi region, although it does conduct uh, cross-border attacks. And then we have Jamaat Nasrul al-Islam, or JNIM, which is not so much a single entity, but rather a coalition of smaller jihadist groups that have teamed up to collaborate and share information. So while JNIM does include the region's Al-Qaeda affiliate, AQIM, the most influential battalions in JNIM are homegrown terrorist organizations, Ansardine, which operates in Northern Mali, and Katiba Masina, which operates in Central Mali. And honestly, that's just a surface scratching summary of the landscape. We have groups that come and go, they morph and split, and fighters defect from one group to another. So there's a lot going on. Yeah, sounds like it's tough to get your head around all these different groups in a very uh, complex and and, and definitely disturbing uh, picture, uh, the trends, uh, the way things are going. 
Uh, now, I'm assuming that because these groups are affiliated with Al-Qaeda and, uh, and the Islamic State, that they're primarily, primarily motivated by religion, or, or is it something else that they cite as a justification uh, for committing violence? Yeah, definitely. You would think um, with these affiliations, with these uh, global jihadist groups, you would think that religion would play a, a motivating role. And in some cases it does, but it is more complicated than that. In, in many cases, a strong argument can be made that these groups are more motivated by political aims than religious ones. So just one example, you know, the vast majority of their attacks um, target state officials or militaries or those to perceive, perceive to be collaborating with them. And you also have group leaders who make ideological concessions for political gains, for example, relaxing religious expectations of fighters in order to attract recruits and sometimes allowing women to sell in public markets after pressure from communities um, where they're, um, you know, where they're operating. But religion definitely plays a role uh, in the objectives of these groups, and it actually plays a stronger role for some groups than for others. So, for example, analysts from the ground report that Amadou Kufa, who is the leader of Katiba Masina within Jainim, exhibits much harsher and more extreme religious motivations than some of his counterparts. And similarly, ISGS's leader Al-Sarawi is known for his extreme religious views and his harsh vision for the future of Islam in the region. So, you know, whether these groups are after political power and territorial control as an end in itself or as a means to be able to enforce their religious ideology on others remains to be seen. And, and they also have a, you know, a broad, decentral, a broad decentralized nature of the threat, which makes it difficult to make generalizations. It's, you know, the reality is that some individuals and some groups are more ideologically extreme and religiously motivated than others. So if, if, they're, if they are motivated more so by political rather than religious ideology, how does this then result in religious freedom violations? And to what extent are we talking about uh, with these uh, violations? Sure. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, these violations, we've seen them pop up in recent years. Um, uh, the groups have been operating for about half a decade now, but in the last couple of years, we're seeing more reporting on these violations. Um, yeah, in some cases, they're driven by um, group leaders or, um, you know, uh, small leaders of smaller subgroups um, having very strong visions and beliefs, uh, religious beliefs. Um, so according to my analysis of the broad landscape of violent Islamist groups operating in the Sahel, two stand out as having committed religious freedom violations. These are ISGS and Katiba Masina. So we've seen reporting that ISGS enforces constraints on religious practice and tradition where it operates, including the prohibition of music and parties and limitation on women's ability to choose their own partners. ISGS also collects a zahat which is a religious obligation tax, uh, and those who refuse to pay are executed. And in addition, ISGS leaders restrict preaching. So for example, they only permit members of the traditional Tijaniya Sufi Brotherhood to preach in select mosques. Um, and then looking more at Kitiba Masina in central Mali, um, they impose a harsh version of Sharia uh, and strict behavior rules in their area of control, especially on women. Katiba Masina reportedly enforces guardianship rules on women's movements in some areas. Uh, the group, um, the fighter, its fighters have also publicly killed local imams and traditional leaders in central Mali and northern Burkina Faso who have agreed with Kufa's beliefs. So these are the kinds of violations um, based on religion or belief that we're seeing in this context of broader insecurity.
So it sounds like you're saying, obviously, these are these are new phenomena happening in more recent years, this targeting on the basis of religion and belief. Can you tell us uh, what kinds of efforts uh, have been made to date uh, then in the region by either some of the uh, neighboring African uh, governments or the international community in general to to try and prevent and counter uh, these violations and activities, uh, in particular, of these two groups? Yes, definitely. You know, the region is definitely in the lead. Um, you know, countries in the region are collaborating to conduct counterterrorism operations and root out these groups through an ad hoc military coalition called the G5 Sahel. May, many neighboring countries uh, like Senegal and Cote d'Ivoire also contribute soldiers to a UN peacekeeping force in Mali, which re- works to reduce the violence and, and also trying to keep those groups from reaching their borders. Uh, Countries in the region are also exploring ways of empowering local communities to defend themselves when they reach kind of capacity constraints for their for their um, armed forces. Um, And these countries are actually also pursuing diplomatic negotiations with some of these jihadist groups. So specifically, both Mali and Burkina Faso have opened negotiations with JNIM. And this decision was actually driven by demands of local communities that their governments seek to negotiate a peaceful solution to the violence. You know, stabilizing the Sahel is also a high high on the priority list for many European countries. Europe sees this context as having the potential to trigger a refugee crisis greater in magnitude than the Syrian civil war. And so European countries are contributing heavily to military efforts in the region. We have the French military force in Mali, Operation Barkhane. We also have three EU training missions, and we have Takuba Tax Task Force, which is an ad hoc multinational military force drawing from the militaries of Germany, Belgium, Denmark, the Netherlands, the Czech Republic, and several other EU countries um, to help with counterterrorism efforts. The U.S. has its eyes on the region, too, although there are higher priorities in Africa for the U.S. and the Sahel. But we do recognize that the growing crisis in the Sahel presents a major threat to U.S. values and interests. So the U.S. named a special envoy to the Sahel in 2019, although the position has not been filled by the Biden administration yet. Um, We also increased humanitarian funding to the region just this spring. And we also, the U.S. trains regional militaries on counterterrorism operations in its annual flintlock exercise. So all of these efforts are a bit more general foreign policy. They're aimed at reducing violence and countering these violent extremist groups as military threats. They're not specifically aiming to address religious freedom violations, though they would likely have an impact on those violations should they succeed. Well, and that's that's an important point, because it sounds like with these broader counterterrorism efforts and so on, that uh, that sometimes they can achieve multiple purposes. But but with these various initiatives from different uh, countries and coalitions, uh, is there a role here specifically for the United States uh, to help address and reduce the religious freedom violations in particular uh, in the central Sahel? Yeah, I think there is. I, I kind of agree with the general global consensus that the region should be in the lead. Um, but I do think that there are some strategic roles that the U.S. can can play and maximize its comparative advantage. I think one of the most useful things the U.S. can do is to provide training to the local officials in Mali and Burkina Faso and maybe in the future Niger 
uh, provide uh, training to the officials who are engaging in the negotiations or the strategic dialogue with these Islamist groups and make sure that those officials representing those governments are aware of their country's obligations under international human rights law. I think this is particularly important because, you know, right now these nations are renegotiating the relationship between the state and the society, whether it's through diplomatic negotiations or on the battlefield. And much of the insecurity uh, in the region stems from the population's dissatisfaction with the current status quo and a desire to rewrite expectations of how these societies govern themselves. And it's clear that religion will play a strong role in this conversation. Now, we've actually already have an example of a country in West Africa that renegotiated the relationship between the church and state recently with pretty dangerous consequences for religious freedom, and that's Nigeria. In 1999, Nigeria transitioned to democracy and drafted a new constitution. And in that constitution, it provided for the establishment of Islamic courts in parallel with common law courts, effectively lending state authority to sentences passed down under Sharia law. And in some instances, these convictions violate international law, including long prison sentences and death sentences for blasphemy charges. So Nigeria's decentralized legal system is still struggling to protect religious freedom of its citizens under these conditions. Now, if the Sahel, if nations in the Sahel are redesigning their systems of government and their rule of law, it's important that they address any potential incompatibilities with international law during the negotiation process. In Nigeria, we've seen the problems that can arise when you leave these aspects of the conversation vague or for future deliberation. So I think the U.S. can and should work through diplomatic channels to train local officials in the Sahel who are negotiating with violent Islamist groups, make sure they're aware of what they are required to protect under international law, especially what they're required to protect about the religious freedom, freedom of religion and belief of their citizens, and, and help advise them on how to best ensure that these protections prevail during the ongoing negotiations. Well, a lot to think through here, uh, certainly with, with a lot that's going on and a lot of potential activity and efforts by the U.S. And we'll have to, we'll have to leave it right here, though. I want to thank uh, Madeline Velturo uh, for her insights today. And I neglected to say up front that she authored this a new report for the commission just published last week on uh, violent Islamist groups in the Central Sahel. You can find that and uh, all of USURF's work on Africa and our latest policy recommendations on our website at www.uscirf.gov. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time on USURF Spotlight. To learn more about USURF, and about global religious freedom concerns, visit usurf.gov. That's U-S-C-I-R-F dot gov. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at U-S-C-I-R-F. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for another Usurf Spotlight.